0: This is inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen folks and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's
1: program, my only son was murdered by a Dallas policeman. Clinton was only 25 years old. He was unarmed and shot seven times.
2: The idea that somebody has listened to your story and you have taken your case to the United Nations is incredibly important. I know how
3: weak the international system is. I know how ineffective so many bodies like the Security Council
4: are. The feeling is always there, that sense of risk. We've had journalists, trade union leaders, human rights defenders presently in prison.
5: I survived. I was able to finally leave the country, but if I were not able to do that I will have been ended up in a jail or torture in the prison. I
3: still know that the Myanmar butchers who are responsible for what happened may never individually be brought to justice.
6: Is this possible? How human being can do such horrible things to other human beings
0: Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks. And right now, here in Geneva, the United Nations is getting ready for the big spring session of the UN Human Rights Council. Foreign ministers from all over the world will be flying in to pronounce on human rights crises. Just for clarification, the Council is made up of 47 UN member states, elected by the rest of the UN's 193 members. The 47 will hear reports of serious situations from Syria to South Sudan, Myanmar or Yemen. And they'll hear special experts' reports on freedom of speech, on the right to food, on the safety of children in war. But who investigates all those things? Who provides the council member states with the evidence of repression, atrocities, of war crimes or crimes against humanity – In today's programme, you're not going to hear too much from me, because we're going to go behind the scenes of the UN's human rights work and talk to the investigators, the independent experts and the brave human rights defenders who testify, often at great risk to themselves. What is that work like? What toll does it take on investigators and witnesses? And does it actually achieve anything? Let's start with the investigators, their stories in their words.
2: My name's Andrew Clapham, I teach international law at the Graduate Institute here in Geneva and I've been on the UN Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan since 2017.
3: My name is Chris Siroti, um, I'm Australian, um, I've always lived and worked in and from Australia but I've also worked a lot with the UN human rights system in Geneva.
6: My name is Ilaria Charla, Um, I come from um, a small town uh, a few kilometres south of Rome and I'm a human rights officer uh, with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights.
5: In a joint report, the UN Human Rights Office and the UN Mission in South Sudan highlighted the plight of civilians caught up in the fighting. The
4: UN Human Rights investigators say crimes being committed by all sides in the conflict include rape, castrations and ethnic abuses. The
2: first trip that I made out of the capital when I met a group of um, displaced women with their children, really in a very precarious uh, situation and showed us what food they had to to survive on. And just around the corner from there, I could see a UN emplacement, which had been totally destroyed and bombed during the fairly recent uh, conflict. And I realized how dire the situation was and how precarious people's lives were, both in terms of survival day to day, but also the, the ever present threat of uh, violence, which um, it really did strike me listening to their stories of of the gangs that had come and, and taken people. And when you hear the the accounts firsthand, yes, that, that does leave a mark on you, definitely.
0: Is it hard to listen to switch off after you've heard that kind of account?
2: I mean people yeah talk about switching off and separating it out but of course you don't really separate it out because once you've heard a story like that and as you can tell now it comes back to you if you speak to anybody who's done this work uh, the idea that you can compartmentalize although that's of course what they tell you to do is uh, it's easier said than done
0: I have covered war I have covered violence throughout my career but I have never heard of anything like that happening to human beings the first time I arrived uh, to the camps, it was unlike anything I've experienced before. It was. And while Andrew Clapham was in South Sudan, lawyer and human rights expert Chris Sidoti had joined the UN's fact-finding mission on Myanmar.
3: Oh, there, there are many things that stand out. Um, we we all had the experience um, of sitting and talking face to face. Uh, with victims and witnesses of some of the most um, serious human rights atrocities you could imagine. And, um, yeah, it's it's very difficult to do. It's, it's emotionally wrenching. The next
4: morning, they were taken outside the village, where they watched their neighbours dig a shallow grave. Witnesses say they were shot and then piled into the makeshift grave, some still
3: moving. No, you, you can't switch off, and yes, things do stay with you. Absolutely. Um, There was an an enormous level of violence against women in particular, women and girls in the Rohingya operations of 2016, 2017. The the accounts that perhaps affect me most uh, are those of children. And and we talk to a lot of kids. Now, I'm a grandfather. Um, I, I sit there and listen and I think of my own kids when they were young and my grandkids now. How can you not and uh, those those experiences that they they tell us that we're privileged to hear stay with you they don't get forgotten for a year now in this bleak landscape the rohingya have been suffering giving harrowing accounts of the brutality they say they suffered at the hands of the myanmar military
0: chris's colleague Ilaria charla had also joined the myanmar investigation she found herself taking testimony from Rohingya refugees
6: who had fled horrific violence to crowded camps in Bangladesh. At the beginning, I told myself, is this possible? How human being can do such horrible things to other human beings? It was hard to believe, but then, you know, when I was in the camps, day after day, interviews after interviews, you know, it was clear that what had happened, it was really a human catastrophe. You know, most of my interaction and interview with victims and witnesses were with people that had suffered or witnessed the killing of one or more family family members. And I remember, you know, this husband telling me, being just there in their house with his wife, uh, you know, doing just ordinary things. His wife was cooking rice, and then, you know, their routine was just interrupted by the the sound of gunshot outside and it was just a split of seconds that make the husband going outside the door and then followed by her wife. But the bullet shot straight the chest of his wife and died in front of his eyes. And, you know, you're there, you're listening to the story. And he tells me, you know, I couldn't even comfort her in the last minutes of of her life because the shooting was still there and he had to run to save his life and he left his wife behind. And that's, just one story of the thousand horrible stories that uh, we collected in the camps.
0: When the village came under attack, she had been taken to a house by members of Myanmar's military. Her child, her baby, had been taken from her arms and then thrown into a fire in front of her face.
6: Uh, I'm a mother myself, and hearing the experience of mothers whose baby had been taken from their arm, from their chest while breastfeeding, throw them into the pits like it's, it's incredible, but you ask me: Do you know? Do these stories affect you? Have an impact on you? I think they do. But it's true that uh, you know. You also, this is your job, and uh, you know, you to embrace your professionally. It's the best you can, um, and it's very hard. And it, 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 it takes its toll on them.
1: Can I take it then that the council
0: agrees with the proposed modalities? I see no objection. It is so decided. So what happens to all this evidence of atrocities, of violations, war crimes and crimes against humanity? The member states of the Human Rights Council will debate and consider, but they can't prosecute or even sanction. The most they can do is censure and continue to keep an eye on things. So when people like Chris, Andrew and Ilaria ask survivors of atrocities to relive the worst moments of their lives, do they ever, I wondered, worry that they're raising false hopes?
3: May mean, ever worry? I'm always, all the time, on every occasion. I know how weak the international system is. I know how ineffective so many bodies, like the Security Council, are. I'm afraid, and those of us who do international human rights work, don't labour under any illusions, but people place their hope in the UN and in the international system. And we we have an an obligation to be very frank about what can be accomplished and what not. And one of the things we can accomplish is to write the historical record so that at least what has happened is recorded and reported and remembered. That's the very least to which people are entitled. And we say that. We say that we can guarantee that the record will be written, that the evidence that they give to us will contribute to presenting the entire picture of what occurred and preserving it historically. And we hope that in addition, there will be possibilities of international justice and that their story may contribute to the development of a picture that causes the international community, um, can I be blunt? The bloody world will get off its arse and do something, because it never happens.
4: I have come to the Human Rights Council, the fulcrum for international dialogue and cooperation to advance all human rights, to launch a call for action.
2: I mean, from my lofty perch, um, I know how limited action of the UN is, I mean, on paper and in law, you know, it can't do that much. But from the other end of the spectrum, the idea that somebody has listened to your story, and you have taken your case to the United Nations, so to speak, is incredibly important. Because if you've gone through something like that, and you feel nobody has listened, and it's nowhere in the system, and nowhere is it logged, that in itself is a source of trauma. So let's not concentrate exactly on the weight of a un human rights council resolution and what it can actually achieve but look at it through the other end of the telescope if you like as to what you know what the person wants out of this they don't really expect you know a chapter 7 resolution with binding powers that will change the regime they just want somebody to listen and to tell them that you know this has been noted down and that uh, steps will be taken
0: is that enough though do you think for the kind of atrocities that you have documented?
2: No, it, it's definitely not enough. But um, and obviously I would like to see more prosecutions and more people sent to prison and more ministers removed from posts. And, but, uh, you know, one also has to be careful in not, use the expression, over-egging the pudding and uh, suggesting to people, you know, that they're all going to get their day in court and they're all going to get compensation. And as soon as I get back to Geneva... Um, all of this is going to be resolved because that would be you know, similarly uh, silly and misleading. So you know, maybe I'm sounding overly pragmatic and resigned, but um, you, know, you, you have to get through the day thinking that you know, this work is, is leading somewhere and not expecting that you're just going to save the world overnight. Human rights are
4: our ultimate tool to help societies grow in freedom.
6: It's giving a voice to these people now. It's the recognition. is the search for truth. By establishing the fact, is the realisation of the right to truth of the victims, but also of the people of Myanmar as a whole. You know, and I think that's, that's already something, that's already a big achievement. And
0: what about the people the UN gives a voice to, as Ilaria puts it? In this podcast, we mustn't forget the human rights defenders, those who suffer violations and turn sometimes as a last resort to the United Nations. It's time to hear from them, their stories in their words.
1: I'm uh, Colette Flanagan. I'm the founder of Mothers Against Police Brutality. Uh, We're located in Dallas, Texas.
4: I am Feliciano Reina. I am Venezuelan, working and living in Venezuela. I've been a human rights defender for, I would say, some 25 years already.
5: My name is Kin Omar. Originally, I'm from Burma or Myanmar, uh, but now residing in the United States.
4: waves of peaceful protests marched on
1: bigger than ever before.
6: No more silence. No no peace.
1: From Washington's newly named Black Lives Matter plaza. My only son, Clinton Allen, uh, was murdered by a Dallas policeman. Clinton was only 25 years old. He was unarmed and shot seven times. Uh, by a Dallas policeman. Our family was uh, completely dismissed by any of the investigators, police departments. We couldn't get any answers. Uh, Trying to get answers to what happened to our child. And uh, from that, other mothers start coming forward uh, because of our boldness and wanting to be heard and refusing to go quietly into the night.
5: Going on forever forever, forever. Enough, is enough
1: the issue of police brutality had just been overlooked it just wasn't something that I think that the UN wanted to delve into and you know we felt that the United Nations is the body the only body that addresses human rights on a global scale. How can they not be a part? That was my thinking.
0: Venezuela's security forces again denounced in the aftermath of Saturday's
6: violent response to unarmed protesters.
0: While Colette Flanagan was mobilizing with other U.S. mothers who had lost children to police violence, in Venezuela, Longtime human rights defender Feliciano Reyna was watching the space for human rights work shrink and repression grow. Reports of arbitrary arrests, of beatings, and even killings of protesters and political opposition groups were increasing.
4: The the feeling is always there, that sense of risk, and the idea that it is possible that at some point, you know, some of these practices may reach you. And in fact, they have. In 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 my case, we've had journalists, trade union leaders, as well as, as human rights defenders, also uh, victims of some of these practices. We have one dear uh, colleague, Javier Tarazona, presently in prison. He had been alerting about many uh, issues affecting populations in our border with Colombia, where you know, there's a guerrilla present and so on. And he was put in jail, it's over 220 days already. Uh, But at the same time, what we have found and, and it's something that we have worked on again as a human rights movement, is that the more that we're closer together, the more that we also engage with our peers, with our partners internationally, the more that we're vocal and participate in these uh, international spaces of human rights with the UN system, it increases the political cost of, um, let's say, attacking human rights defenders or organizations. That doesn't mean that it doesn't happen.
0: This is the biggest protest in Myanmar since 2007 tens of thousands of people on the streets of Yangon. Kin Omar knows all about the dangers for human rights defenders too. She has dedicated her life to the struggle for democracy in Myanmar. My human
5: rights work started way back in 1988 as a student activist at the university when um, we mobilized the nationwide democracy uprising to topple the one-party military dictatorship. We face a lot of violence, especially over the year. I'm sure you've seen what is happening in Myanmar with this military's brutality. We face it in our generation back in 1988, quite similar, but the severity right now is way much higher than our time. But yes, that was a very dangerous time. Like you know, I mean, I survived. I survived the, the, during the 88 uprising. I was able to finally um, leave the country. But if I were not able to do that, I will have been ended up in a jail or torture uh, in the prison. So it was dangerous. I was only 20 years old and coming into Thailand uh, without any document to enter Thailand, I was illegal in Thailand. I was a stateless.
4: Human rights, to ensure equality for women and girls, to advance sustainable development, to prevent conflict, reduce human suffering and build a just and equitable world.
0: Colette Feliciano and Kin Omar turned to the United Nations. For Feliciano, the experience was positive. There are many aspects of the UN's human rights work which sound dry and bureaucratic. The reports member states must make on their compliance with UN conventions, for example. But this process is inclusive, And that means human rights defenders like Feliciano can come to Geneva to have their say too. I
4: am hopeful and I am, let's say, a defender of the system in regards to the UN human rights system. I think it is a part of our work on human rights that is of great importance. We have many reservations, Imogen, and there are reasons to be, you know, sometimes concerned, let's say, about how the system works. Particularly, for example, how is the election of members of the uh, Human Rights Council? I mean, there are some countries there uh, whose track records on human rights are nothing to be proud of, of course. Venezuela. Absolutely, and and uh, you know, and and you have uh, Venezuela, you have uh, Libya, and you have uh, Eritrea. I mean, it, it really is something that that is of concern. And so, in that sense, one would hope, you know, that the mechanism for which countries can present themselves, you know, for election, at times it is also frustrating to see.
0: I mean, I've covered the UN human rights for years now, and I always see how people come from all over the world with hope that the UN will be able to address their difficulties. I mean, do you think, do you have faith? can Can it hold people to account in Venezuela who've committed violations, for example?
4: I'll give you some examples that to us have been absolutely key in advancing our work on human rights and putting the cause of Venezuela on the international and local agenda. One was the process in 2015 or 16, where Venezuela came up to date with reports to the treaty bodies. And that made many of us here work together in presenting the alternative uh, reports. And we were able to be in Geneva to engage with members of the committees on torture, on human rights, on uh, economic, social, cultural rights, women's rights, children's rights. So that's one thing. Then we had two really important reports by uh, Zaid Al Hussein before he left as as High Commissioner, and those set up the stage, let's say, for the coming in of Michelle Bachelet. Her first report in two thousand nineteen even changed the uh, uh, approach to Venezuela in the region. To have such an authoritative voice to say, "I am concerned for these many issues," it really changed things around.
2: An urgent call to end systemic racism around the world. A UN report says more action is required to protect people of African descent. And
0: argues. There's... Meanwhile, Colette and her colleagues had succeeded in putting the treatment of people of African descent high on the UN's agenda, with a report by UN Human Rights Commissioner Michelle Bachelet condemning systemic racism. For Colette.
1: It was a hugely important moment. People feel for in their lifetime, the first time that the UN is really looking at this and uh, people are engaging with us and they I think it gives people hope. It gives people, especially black and brown people that have uh, been just repressed by this government for so many years that that didn't have a voice anywhere, didn't have a voice locally, didn't have a voice uh, nationally, but to now have a voice at the UN and not just going to the UN, as we've seen in the past, you know, a couple of people, you go and they give a speech and they thank you very cordially, but actually working with the UN and them listening and wanting your input and asking for your input is uh, it's very unique. Uh,
0: it's that's really interesting that you you describe it like that because some of the other people I've talked to, and okay, the situation is somewhat are different, but sometimes a case like Syria and war crimes and so on, people come to the UN and they actually think these people will get the person who did that to me prosecuted.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we understand that the UN work will be slow to yield informative results. We get that. And we also understand that they have not really been in this space. Not to say that they don't know what's going on, but I think having families to tell their stories is very powerful and impactful. We put together 141 families is signed off on that resolution to the UN with the name of their child, the police agency that killed their child. And to see that, over a thousand people are killed every year by policemen in America. Now, by any standard, that's an epidemic to me, right? And so I, I you know, I think that our our work with the United uh, Nations has really changed in the, the way, and they've said it, have really changed the way that they see police brutality and police violence and extrajudicial killings uh, in America.
3: Today, we met Rashid. He says they murdered 12 of his relatives.
0: For Kin Omar, however, the UN experience has been mixed. The fact-finding mission, or FFM, which Chris Sidoti is part of, has exposed the violence and brutality.
3: ...convinced it was genocide. And so while he welcomes today's call for the top generals to be tried for that crime, he thinks it's all too late.
0: But what's the UN doing with that evidence? I have to say that
5: they have been helpful because especially in the past, we had to look up to the United Nations human rights bodies. We advocated for, for example, the special rapporteur's mandate. We advocated for the commission of inquiry in which we got the the facts finding mission. You know, and these mechanisms are so useful because the human rights violations in in Myanmar are like really widespread and for so long. So we need the council special attention to Myanmar as a countrywide situation. So it's it's been very helpful, but what I've been finding uh, quite challenging with the UN system is on the human rights side, it's been helpful. But the other agencies and other part of the UN, starting from the Security Council, they have been silent for so long. They've been silent about the human rights abuses under the previous military regime. They've been silent about the early warning signs of the genocide against the Rohingya in 2017. So the FFM, the FFM was so great and the special rapporteur, so great. They came up with concrete recommendations for actions. And yet we don't see, especially now in the last year of the extreme violence, you still don't see you know, the recommendations and there is no concrete action to stop this military in Myanmar.
0: This is the, the gap, isn't it, between the hard work of some of the, the human rights investigators I've been talking to and then the member states at the council, isn't it? It's the political issue, isn't it?
5: It is so much. And when the you know the politics and the member states' national interest, including the economic interest, you know, like override or overshadow the human rights agenda, then we see all of these problems on the ground. All of these are connected. So if Myanmar is going down the hill, and all of these, uh, you know, like uh, democracies countries, you know, as they claim to be, what are they going to do with their investments and businesses? Are now complicit in the military's atrocity crimes because these businesses bankroll the military to be able to buy the weapons, purchase the weapons, and carry on with this terror campaign against the people.
0: And that brings us back again to the human rights investigators. How does Andrew Clapham feel when his painstakingly collected evidence of atrocities seems to fall on deaf ears among the UN member states?
2: I mean, I'm, I've been around the Commission and the Council for a long time. I mean, you have to realize this is not uh, a team of human rights professors uh, trying to work out which cases around the world need the UN's attention. This is a group of states that have been elected by a wider group of states after considerable lobbying who have made sure that they have a position on this body in order to control the agenda. So to be frank, we shouldn't be surprised that the decisions are made by states based on their political agenda. They in no way pretend that they are singling out the worst cases in the world. They know exactly what's happening. It's really... They want to sort of be rude, but it's a bit naive to look at the Human Rights Council and say, oh, my goodness, you know, they haven't said anything about China this year. And they've said a lot about somebody else. But that's because of the makeup of the body and the power of China to be able to influence people to vote with them. And, you know, maybe if more people understand that and there wouldn't be so much surprise.
0: I think that's quite, that's the realpolitik of it, isn't it? And yet, nevertheless, despite the fact that, of course, it's always dependent on member states with their own national political interests, you would say this is a body we need to have and it does achieve things.
2: Absolutely, yes. No, I mean, when we are in South Sudan, uh, obviously I've referred to the satisfaction of victims being able to talk to us. But the government um, is also aware that they're under scrutiny and steps are taken to try to improve the situation. And maybe that would happen less if there was less scrutiny by the Human Rights Council. An aspect of the council that we haven't mentioned is, as you know, universal periodic review, which means that even if not every state is subjected to a commission of inquiry, every state gets reviewed every state's human rights record in the world is reviewed at some point over the four and a half year cycle. And that's a huge improvement over the time that I've been doing human rights. There were decades that went by when most states in the world were never discussed at the UN. And now every state is on a regular basis. And that means that civil society in those states, the press in those states can air their grievances and governments do take measures to try to present their best face at the periodic review and do take measures to try to follow up some of the recommendations. It doesn't make the BBC headlines because it's not, you know, somebody being sent to jail or a new court being set up. But those small steps are very important if you're interested in human rights improvements.
0: But Chris Sidoti points out the evidence he and his team have collected in Myanmar isn't simply disappearing under mountains of Human Rights Council paper. Increasingly, UN investigations are providing evidence in criminal prosecutions.
3: We are seeing court cases in the, in the top international courts now dealing with Myanmar. And, I mean, I can't begin to describe how fulfilling that is for me, but how important it is most of all. I mean, how I feel is not important except to me. How important it is for the victims and the witnesses to have this kind of vindication. Now, I still know how many years it's going to take Um, I still know that the Myanmar butchers who are responsible for what happened may never individually be brought to justice, but I certainly live in hope that one day they will.
0: That's the main success in the end, I guess, of the work that you do. Okay, you can't, Human Rights Council, these reports can't formally launch a prosecution, but it's, it's starting the ball rolling, I guess, isn't it?
3: It's starting the ball rolling and then the reports can contribute to the cases themselves. The International Court of Justice is using our report. Uh, the International Criminal Court is using our report. All the evidence we collected has been handed over to um, another UN mechanism responsible for the preparation of cases for prosecution. So, yes, it's it's very useful. Um, it is being used in, in the tortuous processes of international justice, it is contributing.
0: That point is crucial for Kin Omar. She'll be in Geneva for the Human Rights Council session. Her key goal is to see the men, called the butchers of Myanmar by Chris Sidoti, tried in an international court. Oh yes, yes, that's
5: what I have been working for, and especially since the Rohingya genocide, there is no other way because. We have allowed this military and joined blanket impunity for so long, and that must stop. And how do we do that? How do we bring this military back under the civilian control? Is one these perpetrators are held to account by law, and there is no domestic law available because they are the ones who stay above the law in Myanmar for so long. So now we need the international law to hold them to account for
0: all these crimes that they have committed against the, the people of Myanmar. Investigator Ilaria agrees with that. The UN process may be slow, but provides something crucial, hope.
6: I think, uh, you know, we, we're nothing without hope. And these people cannot turn to their own jurisdiction. They cannot seek remedies in their own country. So maybe, yes, the UN is their only hope, sometimes in some cases. I mean, and the UN, you know, has been there for a long time. Uh, it's possibly the best thing we came up with as an international community. (laughs) Yeah, um, I think, uh, yeah, I I think it's important to have hope, you know, who are we as a human race if we don't have hope.
0: And we're now almost at the end of this edition of Inside Geneva, but I want to hear the final thoughts of human rights defenders Feliciano Reyna and Colette Flanagan. Are they tired of the struggle? Do they hang on to the hope Ilaria talked about? (laughs)
4: I talk about this with colleagues as well, and we feel frustration. And at times we are tired because, again, in 25 years, I'm over 66 now. This has been going on for so many years. But the engagement, the commitment that I see has been encouraging. And I don't see any signs of us giving up. The situation is very harsh. That needs us there on the ground, in spite again of the risks. Knowing the risks and the difficulties and the challenges and the time that profound changes will take, what I think keeps me and my colleagues going is working together, devising ways of uh, advocacy together, nationally and internationally. We feel that it's worth continuing on and uh, let me take somebody's hand when I feel somehow frustrated. That that kind of togetherness really has made a, a huge difference.
1: I always say the Dallas police, they hurt my eyes open and I won't ever be blinded by uh, American power again. The United States is a democracy and we are supposed to uphold life and liberty and freedom for every citizen. And that is not happening in the United States. That is our beacon. That is our constitution. And if those things are not happening in the United States, then that is an egregious attack on democracy and human rights and freedom. And how can the United Nations not be involved?
0: How can it not indeed? We've come to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. The aim was to sweep away the bureaucracy around the UN's human rights work and talk to the people, investigators, defenders and survivors who bring their evidence to the UN and hope for, if not immediate justice, at least attention and recognition. When the Human Rights Council gets underway and the 47 member states begin considering all that evidence, from South Sudan to Myanmar to Syria, Yemen, Venezuela or the United States, why not tune in? The Council is webcast live and take a look. Is your country's representative hard at work, listening, asking questions, making recommendations on how to improve human rights? That's actually what they're there to do. My thanks to all my wonderful guests on the programme and to you for listening. If you've got any comments or questions about the show, you can write to us at insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch. We'd love to hear from you.
5: discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site, and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the swiss connection podcast for a mind expanding experience with swiss info listen on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time